Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have uh, studied keys to successful people, you have no doubt read something about the importance of focus. There are all kinds of lectures these days and books and lessons that, that uh, try to develop that in various venues, companies and, and schools and, and in individuals these days. Steve Jobs famously said, people think focus means saying yes to the things you've got to focus on. But that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that are there. You have to pick carefully. I'm actually proud of the things we've done. Excuse me, I'm actually as proud of the things we haven't done as the things that I have done. Innovation, he says, is saying no to a thousand things. There are all kinds of ways that you could take that insight and apply it to your life, but today I want to apply it to one of the most important areas of your life, which is your prayer life. There are, you might say, a thousand wonderful things that you might pray about, good and wholesome things that you might pray about, but are they the things that you ought to pray about? And more importantly, are they the things that make for effectual praying? Are they the things that are the formula for assuring yourself, if you will, that the Lord will use your prayers? Or are they the, 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 the grist that goes into the mill of futile and useless efforts in prayer? Focus, as it is important in so many other life, uh, areas of life, is just as important in your prayer life. <clears throat> and this morning we look at <clears throat> the, uh, the prayer life once again of the Apostle Paul, and what we find here is another great illustration of how vital focus is in prayer, how important it is that as we pray, as we devote ourselves to prayer, that we're praying not just about anything and everything, but about the important things, about the things which God cares about the things which align with His will, the things which have eternal consequence, the things that, that we have God's very promises that He's going to hear and He's going to fulfill. All of this is really embedded for us in a number of different places, but particularly well in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, one of those passages where Paul again references his prayer life and gives us insight into uh, the prayer life of a servant who is used so powerfully by the Lord, and it's centered, his prayer life, of course, centered uh, not only on his faith, but, and not only on the fact that he prayed, but, but the purpose and the focus of his prayers as to why they were so useful to the Lord. This is what Paul says in just a few verses at the end of the chapter, in verses 11 and 12, about his prayer life, he says, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good work and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we realize that as with many activities, you can fill your life, you can fill your prayer life, I should say, with many different things. You can fill it with so many different requests. We can pray that, that we can complete some task successfully. We can pray that we would always remain safe and healthy. We can pray for our loved ones that they get along well and, and that they do well in whatever their endeavors are. We can pray that we would be spared from suffering or we would achieve success or we would enjoy popularity or that we would uh, find some, some personal sense of fulfillment. We can pray for all kinds of things. All of those things which fill our calendars and our days, our wish list and our, our desires. But as we've seen time and time again, Paul's prayers stacked up against our prayers sound so different than what we would normally pray. And so much of it had to do with the spiritual framework by which he looked at life and the way he looked at his ministry and the way that he looked even at his prayers. Spiritual priorities that guided his prayer life. And it's especially insightful when you examine his prayer life closely in light of what he says about the promises of God. Because Paul is often praying for the very same things that he has already told us or he will tell us right afterward. He's often praying for the very things that he says God has promised to us. In other words, he is in the habit of praying. He's in the habit of asking God to grant what he's already guaranteed. He's in the habit of asking God to grant what he's already guaranteed. This is actually one of the secrets of powerful prayer. Because Jesus promised that the prayers that he will hear, the ones he will act on, are those which are asked in accordance with his will, according to his name, in other words. And so the greatest way that we can ensure that our prayers are answered, the greatest way that we can ensure that they are useful and powerful, the greatest way that you can ensure that your prayers are successful is to pray for those things that you are most certain are the will of God. Pray for those things that you have the greatest clarity and the greatest confidence in as the will of God, those things which are most clearly revealed as the will of God. Now you might be thinking to yourself, why in the world would I do that? Why would I ask for something that is already guaranteed? Well, to state the answer simply, it's because God has invited you to participate in what He is doing so that He can reward you as a further act of His grace. And that's really what prayer is. Prayer is participating in what God is doing. Prayer is it's not some incantation whereby we, we sort of uh, give a spell and God temporarily concedes over to you His sovereign and providential control of the universe so that you can name one or two things that ought to happen. Prayer is you aligning yourself with the will of God So that you can participate in what he is doing. And he in return 
can reward you as an act of His grace and kindness. You might think that's useless. Why would you spend your time asking for those things when God has promised them already? Well, the reason you do it is partly because you have grown to the place, hopefully in your spiritual life, where you desire those things anyway. And partly, you realize that by participating with what God has already declared was His will or is His will, that you actually are are engaging in those things which are most fulfilling and most rewarding to you. Now, we don't have time to trace it out throughout Scripture, but you see this all over the place. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is reading from the scroll of Jeremiah. Here he is in Babylon and in captivity and he's reading from Jeremiah's scroll and he finds the place where it says that the captivity for Israel is going to last 70 years. And then he cross-references that with the calendar and he realizes that the 70 years are about up. And so what does he do? Most of Daniel chapter 9 is, const- is made up of a prayer of Daniel where he is basically doing one thing. He is, he is confessing the sins of Israel to the Lord in hopes that God would release them from captivity. In hopes that God would restore them, which is exactly what he just read in the book of Jeremiah God had promised to do. It's one of the most beautiful prayers that you'll find anywhere. One of the most humble prayers you'll find anywhere. But it was all stoked by and driven by the realization of a promise of God that Daniel wanted to participate in as the Lord worked it out. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see again this same kind of dynamic. A godly man praying and asking God to grant what he has already guaranteed. In fact, if you have any hope of being used by the Lord in similar ways to the Apostle Paul, it is imperative that you gain this mature understanding of prayer and that you ought to adopt prayers in similar fashion. And so to that end, what we really need to do this morning is just take note of what Paul is asking for To understand how you and I can take that as a pattern for our prayer life and begin to pray the same kind of things. And so we can look at this, really, these prayers that are in accordance to the will of God or prayers that are accomplishing the will of God and model our prayer life exactly after what Paul gives to us right here. First of all, you could just take note in verse 11 of Paul's prayer, and pattern your prayer life this way. Pray that you, or by those you love, or whoever you're praying for, pray that they might be made worthy of their call. Now that's what Paul prays for there in verse 11. He prays that they would be worthy of their call. Just to remind you, this is the end of a long prayer of thanksgiving, if you will, goes all the way back to verse 3. That's the main idea in the whole um, chapter. In fact, if you look at it in the original language, that's the main verb. 
Everything else is just a sort of a subordinate clause in some way to that main idea in verse 3 where Paul says he ought to give thanks. And he gave thanks for a number of different things. He gave thanks that their faith was growing abundantly. He gave thanks that their, their, their love for everyone was increasing. He gave thanks that they were showing steadfastness in the face of affliction. And all of this, he says in verse 5, is evidence... That God is using and preparing in order to do what? To declare them worthy of the kingdom of God on the day of judgment. That's what he's giving thanks for. But now, even though he is thanking God that they're showing the evidence of that worthiness, now he says, to that end or to this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. So he sees the evidence. He sees what God is doing. He gives thanks for what God is doing. But then he turns around and asks God to do it still more. To make them worthy of his calling. And when Paul says his calling, what he's talking about is what we often refer to as the effectual call. You'll hear theologians use that word sometimes, the effectual call of God, meaning the call of salvation, the call out of your unbelief and into faith and into adoption and into ultimately God's glory. Romans chapter 8 presents the call of God really within the context of an unbreakable chain. One that begins in eternity past but with God foreknowing and predestining us all the way to the point of our call and all the way to the point of our glorification. Paul says, we know that those for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here's Paul sort of linking all this stuff together. And what he's saying is that if you have been called, you have been justified. And if you have been justified, you are already glorified. It's guaranteed. It's an unbreakable chain. You can't be called without being justified and you can't be justified without being glorified. God's not going to go back on any of those promises. And yet at the same time, even though Paul recognized this this inevitability and he recognized this guarantee to the call, at the same time, he understood that when you are called, it is never because you're worthy of that call. God doesn't call people who deserve it. In fact, he calls people in spite of their unworthiness. Paul himself was called when he was on the road to Damascus in order to kill and persecute Christians. He was the epitome of this unworthiness. And so Paul understood how the call of God works. He understood that God calls people and he calls them effectually and he calls them all the way to the very end. And yet at the same time, they're called when they are unworthy. If you are here today and you don't know God, God, 
When he calls you, he calls you not because you've dressed up your life so that you can present yourself to God. He calls you right where you are in the midst of the filth of your sin. And if you respond to his call, he calls you as an unworthy vessel that he himself will work in to clean you up as he so pleases to do. And that's really what Paul's praying for. He's praying here now that God would make these people worthy of that call. Praying that these Thessalonians would become worthy of the call that they've received. He's asking God, now that he has called them, that they would live up to their calling. Or as he says in Ephesians, that they they would walk worthy of their calling. They would become Worthy to be called the children of God. They would grow in the things that please God so that God could take delight in them. This is not a process that Paul doubted. It's not as if some people are called and and they just sort of remain in the muck and mire of their sin. Paul didn't have any doubt. He understood that this was something that God would do. Once you've been called, He will do it. As a matter of fact, you may remember... At the very end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So you hear what Paul's saying. He says, look, if God has called you, I don't have any doubt in my mind that he's going to do it. He is going to sanctify you. He is going to conform you to the image of God. And yet, in spite of that confidence, in spite of that certainty, Paul still felt compelled to cooperate with what God is doing by asking him to do it. He wanted to align his prayers with what he knew was the will of God. And then as he saw God answering those prayers, he had the delight of rejoicing in answered prayer. And of course, when you align your prayers so closely with the revealed will of God, you also end up rejoicing. You end up Aligning yourself with God's eternal priorities. Aligning yourself so that you weed out all of the ineffectual and futile prayers that are based on our own cravings and our own covetousness. As James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own desires. How much prayer falls under that category? How much of your prayer is futile wasted wood, hay, and straw, as the Apostle Paul says, just going to be burned up in the end. How much of your prayer is just that kind of prayer? Because you have inserted so much of your own personal desires, your own personal dreams, and your own personal lust into your prayer life, and you have no idea if this is really what God wants. Well, Paul understood that, and so what he does is he 
discovers or he affirms what is absolutely the will of God and then he just turns around and prays that. I'm not sure if someone listened in on your prayers, how many of them would align in this way, whether it's for your children or your church or your family or your friends, how much time you spend asking God to make them successful in whatever things they're doing, things which matter sometimes the least, how much time you spend asking God to help them with their next trivial little endeavor, to help them pass this test or get this job or help them feel a little bit better or to be a little bit happier or a little bit healthier, that all their problems and all their obstacles would disappear. I don't know how much time you spend praying those kinds of things. But let me ask you this, in a hundred billion years from now, will that test really matter? Will the sniffle in their nose really matter? Will that job, whether they get it or not, really matter? Paul understood what matters. He understood that in a hundred billion years from now, what matters is that they walked worthy of the call that they received from God. And so his prayer is that these Christians would live worthy of that call. He prayed that way not only because he knew it was God's will, but he also prayed that way because he knew how difficult it was. He understood that our flesh is weak. He understood that the obstacles of the enemy were great. He understood that so many things stand opposed to us. And so he prayed because he understood these kinds of challenges, which is really a second part or a second aspect of his petition here, and it becomes a second pattern, if you will, of what ought to drive our prayer. We ought to pray for those whom we love. We ought to pray that they would be empowered to fulfill godly desires, which is exactly what he prays. In verse 11, not only that God would make them worthy, but also that he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. They were, he would bring to completion these two things, the, the desires for goodness in their heart and every work of faith. He, he understands that as those who are called by God, when God calls you, He creates within you new desires. Desires that are born out of His grace and desires for goodness and, and, and for the outworking of your faith, your old desires to flee away from God and to avoid His Word and to avoid His people, all of those things are done away with. If you're a creature, new creature in Christ, He plants new desires within you, desires that compel you towards goodness, desires that, that stir within you to pursue what is right and what is holy what is beneficial to others. Paul doesn't even begin to argue that those desires are there. He just simply recognizes that they're true and then asks God to bring them to completion. I mean, he knows by personal experience how difficult it is, how frustrating it is as a Christian. You have all these desires and you're not able to fulfill them. Because, as I said, the weakness of your flesh, the assaults of the enemy, the challenges of trials, it is an arduous pursuit. 
Whenever you're working out the salvation that God has worked within you. Those inner desires that that Paul says are there. He wants them to be matched by works of faith. Which is sort of the outward expression of those inner resolve desires for good. Works that are produced by faith. Works that give evidence of your faith. Works that spring from your faith. These are the works that James talks about whenever he says, A faith without works is dead. But, but he, he says, could show you his faith by his works. Well, this is the reality if for every genuine Christian. You have works that are inside of you. They're desires within you that just, just sort of bubble Forth in genuine works, genuine works that demonstrate your faith, produce visible fruits. And this is what Paul wants to see happen within them. He wants to see them walking worthy, and that worthy walk being that those inner desires produce these outward works. The works don't save you, God's grace is what saves you. We're saved not by works, but according to grace through faith, Ephesians says. But it doesn't stop there because it goes on to say that we're also His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared hand that we should walk in them. So we're saved by grace through faith, not according to our works. But even beyond that, the works that we then subsequently produce... They themselves are the workmanship of God. And Paul understood all this. And so he's praying for this in their life. That this working of their faith would work itself out in such a practical, visible, tangible way that they would be considered worthy of their calling. Remember, he had already given thanks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He gave thanks for their, what? Work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He already saw this happening in their life. He already saw the evidence of this happening in their life. He remembered it. He constantly gave thanks for it. Even back in verse 3, he gave thanks that their faith was growing and their love was increasing. So when he's praying for this, it's not because he doubts that it's, it's happening. It's not because he's fearful that somehow it won't be produced. But he's praying it because he understands that this is the will of God. And so he wants to align himself with the will of God. And he asks God by his power, by his working, by, by his spirit to work out these things in their life. Those good desires, those commitments that you make to the Lord. All that resolve that God would empower you and assist you to bring those to fruition. It's that image in Genesis chapter 19. The image of Lot in Sodom. Just before its destruction. You remember he's visited by two angels who come graciously to the city 
and they are staying in his house. They, they wanted to stay out in the city square, but Lot knew how they would be abused by the people of the city if they tried to do that. So he takes them into his house, and the people in the house, uh, people in the city excuse, city, excuse me, raid his house, almost beat down the door out of their lustful desire for these two men who are actually angels until the angels strike them with blindness. And then they declare to Lot that they're going to destroy the city. And they say, they said to Lot in verse 12 of Genesis 19, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, sons, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And verse 16 says, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him. And brought him and set him outside the city. I love that phrase. The Lord being merciful to him. Yeah, I got all kinds of things that in my heart I want to do for the Lord, all kinds of ways I want to share the gospel, all kinds of ways I want to pray more, all kinds of ways that I want to help those who are struggling and in need, all these people that I want to visit with. I got all these things, and yet I have to face too many times where I just find myself lingering. Out of neglect and out of laziness, out of sinful desire, out of selfish pride or whatever it might be, out of fear. And I just realized that there are times when the Lord's mercy must seize me by the hand and lead me out of wherever I'm lingering if I'm going to make any progress in my faith. Paul understood this. He understood As he prayed for these people. He's not asking them to stir up more resolve in their heart. What he's saying is all that resolve, all the good desires in your heart that are wonderful. The Lord has put them there of course. Now what I'm asking is that the Lord would by his power help you work all of those things out. All the aspirations that you have. To start that Bible study in your office or along your street. All the desires you have to to be deeper in your study of His Word, more committed to it. All the desires that you have to be the kind of parent that you want to be. To respond the way that you want to respond. All those good and godly aspirations that go along with a worthy walk according to His call. You need God's empowering mercy to help you bring all of those things to fulfillment. And unless he does that, all of those good and godly desires just remain barren and fruitless on the tree. So Paul understands 
that while he's confident, God is already at work in them, bringing about works of faith. Nevertheless, he prays even more that God, by his power, would bring those things to fulfillment. That he would fulfill all of those desires. And with that, and the ultimate result in verse 12 of his glory which is his third petition, kind of a third pattern that ought to drive our prayers. And he says it there in verse 12, pray that they might glorify God. All of your friends, all of your loved ones, pray that they would ultimately glorify God. He says it, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his ultimate focus in his prayers. The glory of God. When he prays, he prays that they would work out their salvation, that they would walk in this worthy manner in such a way that God's name would be exalted so preeminently through them. And when he says name, what he's really talking about is not just the word of his name. He's talking about his attributes. He's talking about his character. That's what the word name means as you look throughout the pages of Scripture. God's name is the embodiment of his character. And so he's praying for these people that as they have these godly desires and they want to do these things and they want to lead their family in this way and they want to, they want to be a leader in their office or a leader in their church and they want to do all these things. They, they have this impulse to, to pursue the Lord and dedicate their life to the Lord and be used by the Lord in all these ways. And have they, as they have all that, he prays that God would allow them to do that by his power so that the result would be in God's glory. In other words, he's praying that there wouldn't be any kind of mixture of, of what D.A. Carson calls vulgar self-interest or this, this profane desire for self-attention. So that whenever you serve, whether it's teaching a Bible study or, or cleaning, up, uh, cleaning up after those who, who have participated in the Bible study, whether you sing a solo or share the gospel or serve as an usher or vacuum the floors or whatever it might be, you visit the sick, you donate money to pay someone's rent, that all that stuff that you do and all those beneficial acts of your faith that when people, when you do it and people turn around to see who did that, that they would look past you and see nothing but the glory of Christ. That's what Paul's praying for. He's praying that they would do all these things and that they would be forgotten. That they would be, that they would be unnoticed, if you will, because there's so much attention being drawn to the glory of Christ. He's not praying for them to have zeal for these good deeds so that they could be recognized as the most remarkable Christians around. He's not praying that they would be lifted up in their reputation, they would make a name for themselves. He's praying that the name of Christ would be exalted. Now he knows, he says in verse 10, he knows that's going to happen one day in the day of judgment. He, he's, already, he's already heralded that. But he's praying here in verses 11 and 12 that that would be taking place even now as those works of faith are being worked out. 
in all their present deeds and actions. Their truest desires finding fulfillment. That all that would redound to the glory of of Christ. He's praying that because he understood that that is the greatest blessing for them as well. Which really is part of this. He says not only that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ be glorified in you. But also you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is really the... This is really the paradox, if you will, or the, the element that, that they needed to understand. That as they devote themselves more and more to the glory of Christ, as they give themselves more and more to exalting Him, that everything they give away only redounds to their own Benefit only redounds to their own glory. Because as He's glorified, we are in Him. As Paul says, you in Him. As He's lifted up and us turning and gazing so so adoringly at Him. As He's lifted up and we in Him. His reflection, if you will, in us brings about our own glory. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You're already saying here, you know, here we are, we're turning around, we're gazing at Christ, we're gazing into His glory. We're doing everything we can to deflect all praise and attention away from ourselves and to Him. But as that is happening, we are reflecting more and more and more of His glory. And so we are being glorified in Him in that sense. And all of it, Paul says, is according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only only kind of glorification we should be concerned with. The glorification that comes by conformity to His image. It's the only kind of gain that we should want to receive. The gain that comes only by giving everything away to Him. The kind of works that we ought to be doing are the kind that we clearly know and clearly declare are by His grace. And so our every intent is on His glory. I love this quote here by John Calvin. If we are not worse than stupid, we must aim with all of our might at the advancement of the glory of Christ, which is connected with ours. We should be all about His glory. Because it's only pathway we have to ultimate satisfaction. You can't neglect that last phrase there. Paul ended that way intentionally. All of this is by God's grace. You don't want to mistakenly think that he was simply praying for them to try harder. You don't want to mistakenly think that he was simply praying for them to buck up 
and be more of what they intended to be. He recognizes that all of this is going to happen only by the grace of God. And so he prays that God's grace would bring all these things to fulfillment. We got to pray that way. We got to incorporate these petitions into our prayers. We got to recognize the resolves of goodness that are in our heart, the works of faith that are not fully manifest in our life. We need to begin to pray that God would bring all those things about. We need to align ourselves with the prayer of God so that we can say with all confidence, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. We align ourselves that way. We bring our, our will into conformity with His We lift our prayers above all the mundane, trivial things of everyday life and set them on eternity. Those are prayers that are fruitful, powerful, useful, that bring fruit not only in the here and now, not only in the present life, but they bring fruit for all eternity. And that, that is a useful, fruitful prayer life. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for this, thankful for this reminder. How could we pray anything other than your will be done? And you've revealed it to us so clearly. You are at work among us. You who called us, you are faithful and you will indeed do it. To that end, Lord, we do lend our voices to your cause. May we set aside all of our own desires for personal glory, our own kingdom, our own power, our own wealth, our own prestige. May we set aside all of those worldly pursuits that fill our prayer life every day and help us to align our desires with you and to rejoice when we see them fulfilled. We pray, Father, for our loved ones. We pray that you would make them worthy of the call that they've received. We pray that they would walk in all goodness and righteousness and faith. We pray for them, Lord, that they would direct their life to your glory above everything else. They would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, trusting that you'll add everything else to them according to your good pleasure. And make our prayers just such, O Lord, throughout all of our days, refined closer and closer, more and more in conformity with your word that you might powerfully use us to accomplish your will in everywhere where we have influence and impact. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.